18 to 23. Hear the reading of God's Word. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even in the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is true and right, and you have told us that it will not wither, it won't fade, and it won't go away. So, Lord, we give you thanks for that. Carry your word, your truth, your living word to these people here. May it mold and shape lives. May it make them more like Jesus today. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. A lot can happen over dinner. (laughs) In June of 1790, the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, ran into Alexander Hamilton, and, and, and the, it was in the temporary then capital of New York City, believe it or not, and Hamilton appeared to be just a mess. He was disheveled, and he was just frustrated with life, and there was deadlock in Congress over who was going to assume the debts, and, and what would be the states or the union, all kinds of crazy things, and they were trying to figure out Where's the capital going to be? Is it going to be in New York? Is it going to be in Philadelphia, someplace else? What's happening? And so these guys were getting together, and they saw each other, and they began walking a little bit, and he invited him to dinner. He he invited them, Jefferson invited Hamilton to dinner along with somebody else. He also invited James Madison, a politician who was hoping to nail down all of these things. And he was, really had the agenda of, we need to find a place for our, excuse me, for our nation's capital. Since that time, the nation was divided by slavery. During this dinner, the three founding fathers came to an understanding of where the capital would be. At that time, it was Philadelphia. And then they determined after that it would be where we know now is Washington, D.C., all over a dinner meeting. A lot can happen over dinner. In 1965, a gentleman by the name of Lloyd Morissette, vice president of the Carnegie Corporation, he is a guy that has a Ph.D. in experimental psychology. He's got some good creds from Yale. He got up one Sunday morning, and it was about 6.30 in the morning, and he saw his daughter. And she was in her pink-footed pajamas, and she was sitting in front of a television. Now, this is some years ago, right? In 1965, when television wasn't on all of the time. And she was watching the test screen. You know what these test screens were, right? It wasn't probably even in color, but it was just a haze of tests, right? This is channel 13 in New York City, whatever it may be. And he came down, and she had just been sitting there watching. And she would have been watching anything, she could have been watching any show, but she was watching the, text, the, the test screen. Not much later, Morissette was at a dinner. Was it a dinner with a, with a woman by the name of Joan Gons? I think that's how you said it. Joan Cooney. She was a public affairs producer at New York's Channel 13. 
And at that dinner party, Cooney and Morissette got to talking about children's education and television. And and could the two merge into something special, into something different? And out of a dinner meeting, there was a famous song and a famous show that came about over dinner. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to Sesame Street? We all know it, right? The world can change over dinner parties. Everything can change. It would seem that the world is often shaped over dinner. Families have been created over dinner. Families have been destroyed over dinner. The world has been shaped. Countries have been formed and aligned at dinner parties. There is something about the sharing of a meal that is important to us as humans. Perhaps it's because it just puts us all on the same playing field. There's a saying that you don't eat spaghetti on a first date. Why? Because it shows all of your mess. It shows all of, this, all of the inappropriate things that we do with silverware and slurping. and It's just not good manners. So what do we do? We have a salad with a salad fork that shows how dainty and pretty we are, right? It doesn't allow us to... Sharing a meal perhaps brings us all on a level playing field. That's why, as we saw last week, we talked about feasts and fasts. Excuse me, if you remember last week as we were in the first part of Zechariah 8, there was a delegation that came to Zechariah asking him about these feasts and these fasts. Should we keep fasting now that the city was in progress of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city? Should we keep fasting to remember what had happened to the city, to remember that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city? Should we keep doing this? This was the question at hand. Talking about dinners. And should we feast or should we fast? That's why here in Zechariah 8, he continues on with this conversation with this delegation that's from another city. Because meals are important. They're important to us. They're important throughout the world and they're extremely important to God's people. For in the fast, they remembered what had happened. In the feast, they remember what had happened and who the Lord is and what he has done for them. And the prophet here at the conclusion of chapter 8 says something remarkable about fasts and feasts and what the Lord will communicate through them. What he communicates about them and what he communicates about himself through these fasts and feasts. And so then we come to verses 18 and 19 and they seem a bit strange and perhaps even a bit out of place for what we saw earlier in chapter 8. But what we must remember is the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet is to proclaim the Lord's truth to proclaim who the Lord is, what He is doing, and what He will do, and what He will accomplish for His people. So then, it's the case then in verses 18 and 19 of Zechariah 8, these things are a wonderful picture of the gospel. There's this great reversal. The fasts will turn to feasts, and peace and love and truth will be the result. And these are what we're to look forward to there then is something for the people of Israel to look forward to. There's hope given to them that the fast won't be forever, but there is a feast coming. And in that feast, there will be peace and truth and joy. The Lord will cause the fast to give way to a feast. This seems to be the exact narrative of the gospel. 
The exact same narrative that the gospel writers pick up on in the teaching of Jesus as he was wandering around the mountainside teaching on these very things. Think of the Beatitudes, if you will, with me. Remember a little bit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The same juxtaposition, right? The mourning... Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who are poor in spirit, they, they will have the kingdom of heaven. They will have riches of spirit, right? It's this transformation from nothing to something. And so Zechariah, in this chapter 8, is speaking of a greater, more glorious day. A day of a feast. He's looking to the gospel. He's looking to Jesus Christ. The one who sets the world on its head, Right? Where the poor in spirit inherit wealth. Where those who mourn are comforted. For in the presence of the Lord, as we saw last week, there is peace and blessing. And again, looking forward to the gospel writers, early on in his ministry, Jesus addresses this very issue of fasting and feasting. Because people were asking him questions about this. The leaders of the day were asking similar questions. Why do you guys not fast or feast? What is going on? And Mark records in his second chapter these words. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This is the thrust of Zechariah 8. If you remember, again, that there was this delegation from, uh, from Bethel that has come to the prophet saying and talking and asking about these feasts and fasting. And we saw last week that the outcome of these conversations was that the Lord is near. And because the Lord is near, they have peace and they have the presence of the Lord. And this is what Zechariah is completing here as well. And it's what Jesus is saying. Why should we fast if the Lord is near? If the Lord is present, we have no need to fast because it's time to feast because the Lord is with us. And so why do the nations come? Why do the people from all over the world come? Why do they feast? That's what it says in the last verse of chapter 8. Because God is with them. Why should we fast if the bridegroom is with us? Zechariah says, because God is with them. Jesus said, because he is with us. So the nations come. And the nation's fast will be turned to feasts because of the presence of the Lord. Verse 23 at the very end, because as I said, God is with you. Friends, this morning with all of the horrors, all of the chaos that surrounds us in life this morning, war, murder, abandonment, confusion, hurt, and pain. And these images are not only played out on the television screens in front of us, but also perhaps even in our living rooms, in our job places, in our schools. It's good that we ask the question then. What really is there to feast about today? Why celebrate when the world looks like it does right now? Should we feast right now? Or should we fast? This is the question that was before Zechariah. It's before us. The answer, 
is that we feast. Why? Because Jesus is with us. We feast because we know we have the creator of the universe as our God, and he has promised never to leave or forsake. But what does that celebration look like? To answer that question, we must remember again the scene in which the story is being played out. A city that was ravaged by war, torn down by a siege of an evil tyrant, just as so many of the images that we see over the last two weeks are so very similar. The city of Jerusalem is in the process of rebuilding. In the process of wondering what will happen next, the prophet says to look forward to something glorious. Look forward to something more. Look forward to a larger feast, a day when the swords will be turned to plowshares. Look forward to a day when the lion will lie down with the lamb and the child will play at the adder's den. We need to look forward to the coming of the Lord. But how is this possible when we live in times like these? Because God is with us. So this morning I would like to take us to a place to better understand joy, to better understand the feast, to better understand what it is that we celebrate even in the midst of these times right now. I want to take us to a place where we understand peace. I want to take us to a place where we better, under, a place where we better understand feast. But in order to accomplish that, in order to accomplish that, we need to understand the fast as much as we understand the feast. So allow me to be somewhat bold and blatant with you this morning and to say this. It's impossible to be saved without mourning and repentance of our sin. These fasts that we're talking about here in Zechariah 8 and the people we're talking about represent the mourning and the repentance. For them, they're representing the mourning and the loss of a city, the mourning and loss of neighbors and friends and family members, the mourning and the loss of being taken into captivity, the mourning and the loss of, their, of, of, of a temple, of the place where God was worshipped and the place where he resided. They, feed, they fasted to remember these terrible events to remember their history, to remember who they were, and also to remember what the Lord had done. These fasts represent all of these things. And so it's, if we lack a knowledge then of our past, of our sin, and we lack a knowledge of how sin impacts every square inch of our city, of our church, of our family, and of ourselves, we will never understand the feast. If we lack these understandings, the cross means very little to us. It's of very little significance. It means anything, if it means anything at all, if we don't understand the impact of our sin, both as individuals and as a body. Not only as a body of Christ, but as a body of creation. Therefore, as we look around the world today, as, as we read articles, as we see images of horror pour into our minds it's no wonder there's war. Because so many of us don't have an understanding of the impact of sin and our need of the cross. It's no wonder there's violence and hatred and bigotry and racism. It's no wonder there's heartache and heartbreak because the cross doesn't make any sense if we don't understand our need of it. 
there's no sense, if there's no sense of our own brokenness, there's no sense of our need of salvation. And that's just not for the world out there. That's just not for Vladimir Putin. That's for me. Because I wonder about my own heart and my own life. How often I cling so firmly to my understanding of truth and my understanding of right and wrong. And I wonder if I too often lose the cross. I want to shove my wrongs into a corner and pretend they don't exist. I want to deny the wrath of God and pretend it doesn't exist. I want to say it doesn't matter. I'm a pastor after all. That's got to give me something. The way I treat someone or don't treat someone does not apply to me because that's who I am. Should be all right, right? Too often I find myself lost in the appreciation of self rather than in the mourning of my soul. I want more, more, and more. I only want the feast. I don't want to fast. Perhaps it's better said this way. If I have no sense of the wrath of God, the fact that I, Ryan, am a sinner, which every part of me is stained by sin, and I have no burden for the weight of my sins, then my faith, my Christianity is a light matter of no real significance. There's no need to mourn because I have nothing to mourn because I've got it figured out. My life is pretty good. I have degrees on the wall to show it. Does that ring familiar to you at all? I hope so. Because we all must wrestle with the fast. With the fact that sin touches every element, every square inch of our lives, of our hearts, of our families, of our jobs, of our church, of our city, state, nation, and world. If, however, though, I understand that I am a chief of sinners, that like David, my bones waste away from mourning all the day long, and I know that the Lord's hand is heavy upon me because of my sin, that is something altogether different, isn't it? It's then and there when I begin to understand the cross. It's then and there where I begin to understand the fast. The fasting of who I am and what I've done. In order to be reminded of the weight of the transgression, I need to be reminded of the fast. Reminded of the sin. To wrestle and deal with the sin. And not shove it in the corner and pretend it doesn't exist. But to bring it to the cross. Cross. However, at the very same time, something remarkable happens. It's in that moment where we also understand the words that the Lord tells us. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Well-known theologian J.C. Ryle says these words, A sense of sin, guilt, and poverty of soul is the first stone laid by the Holy Ghost when he builds a spiritual temple. He convinces us of sin. 
is not when we begin to feel good, but when we feel bad, that we take the first step toward heaven to realize our spiritual need and to feel true spiritual thirst is the ABC in a saving Christianity. So it is the nations that come to Jerusalem, as we see here, just in Zechariah. They come because God is with them, and they understand what it means to go from the fast to a feast, to understand what it goes from conviction of sin to the forgiveness of sin, from the fast to a feast. And now suddenly the feast is all that much more wonderful, isn't it? The feast is all that much more wonderful when the fast was so bitter. The savory of the feast is so much better next to the bitterness of the fast. And because the bitterness of the fast was so tremendous, so difficult, now the feast becomes all that much more glorious. So then it's fitting then that on this first day of Lent, we begin this process afresh. Not only in our everyday lives, but also of members of a larger body of Christ that recognizes this very reality. That's what makes Lent and Easter so powerful. And that's what makes them so wonderful in our lives, even here, to the lives of the believer. Because we understand the fast and we understand the feast. For the greatest fast of all was the day that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was nailed to a tree and put in a tomb. On that day, even heaven shed tears. The skies were darkened and the rocks cried out in sorrow. But then on the day of the resurrection, the Lord caused the sun to shine and the Son of God rose from the dead and the morning was cast off. This then is the reason to love joy and truth in the middle of the fast, in the middle of the heartache, in the middle of the pain. Think about the women who came to the tomb. They were in the middle of mourning. Not M-O-R, but M-O-U-R, right? They They were mourning in the morning. And they went to go to the tomb, fully expecting to to go and continue the embalming process of their friend, their Savior, their God, the man who they've grown to love more than anyone else. And they were fully expecting, through their tears and their heartache, to find the body. But there, as they walked forward, we know the story. They approached, and there were no more soldiers. The stone had been rolled away, and the body was gone. They then quickly ran back to tell their friends, you're not going to believe it, but it's true what he said to us. He's alive. He's alive. Come and see that he's alive. And then we know the stories, and the men came running back, and they saw the same things. The gospel then moves us from death to life, moves us from mourning to celebration, from fast to feast. This is why we celebrate. This is why the gospel is so wonderful. This is why Zechariah 8 is such a wonderful picture of the gospel. To tell us that there's going to be the nations coming out of their fasts into the idea and the knowledge and the understanding that the Lord is with them. And he is going to change their lives from mourning to celebration. So what does this all mean for us here today? It means that we don't set aside the hurt and the pain. It means that we don't shove it away. 
It means we don't try to push away the things because we, we don't believe it or we don't want to believe it. It actually means that we embrace the hurt and the pain. And not only of ourselves, but of each other. And not only of this church, but this city. And not only of this city, but our state and our nation and our world. And everybody in it. It means we embrace each other's hurts and pains. It means that we join with the hands of the nations in, of which we are a part to come alongside and to grab a, hold, a ro- grab a hold of the robe of the Jew, Jesus Christ. It means that we mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. So it's good and right that we mourn and weep with our friends in Ukraine. It's good and right that we weep with those who hurt and earn pain here this morning. We weep with those who weep, and oh, how we weep these days. It's gut-wrenching, isn't it? But there are many among us who mourn and weep for all sorts of things. And so as those who have seen the tomb rolled away, or the stone in front of the tomb rolled away. We have an opportunity to do just what Zechariah has done. To look to something in the future. To look to something glorious. Because God's with us. I love verse 22 of chapter 8. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue will take a hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. There's a lot to be gleaned from that one verse. And I could probably preach three or four more sermons just on that verse. But what does this have to do with us? May encourage us to wrestle with the reality of the feast. As we know the pain of the fast, it's also the joy of the feast that we celebrate here this morning. In the last few verses here that I just read, it says these things for us. People from around the world will know Jesus as their Savior. This is promised to us. People from around the world and even in this congregation, that's true. We also can glean from that that the mission of the church is to to lead the nations to the robe of the Savior Jesus Christ. That's our job, to bring the nations, to show them who Jesus is and what he's done, to lead them from the fast to the feast. You say, I can't do that, Ryan. I don't have a degree on the wall. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. I'm not a Sunday school, Sunday school teacher. I'm just me. Zechariah says, yes, but God is with you. And this is the task that we have before us. But we also know that this day is not fully manifest yet. We see in this room there's products of this promise, Right? But we also know that there are more that the Lord is leading to himself. So we have more to look forward to. We have more of a job to do. We have more work because God's with us. So we come again to a feast this morning. We come to a feast of our own. We come to, the, we come to this feast out of the hectic days of our lives And there are moments of joy, there are moments of sorrow, there are moments of mourning, and even moments of happiness. 
But there's something more in store for us. There's a bitter, a bitter, there's a bigger and better feast that is waiting. A feast where the Lord Jesus sits at the head of the table with a nation surrounding. There's no war. There's no famine. There are no tears and there's no crying. There's no death, only life. A feast where the bride and the groom are together, united forever. From Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. So imagine this is the thunder. We all know what thunder sounds like, right? The the loud crashing booms of thunder say these words, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are the true words of God. We come to this table this morning with the crashes of thunder in our ears to know that this is just a foretaste of that feast. Friends, if that's, not look, look, if that's not something to look forward to, I don't know what there is. Imagine a table with the nations and all of God's people. At the head sits Jesus, and we feed on the author of life. And he gives us a taste of that this day, today, with bread and a cup. And so no matter where we find ourselves this morning, no matter our hurts, no matter our pains, and how real they are, May we come to this table and have a taste of something to look forward to, just as Zechariah looks forward to that. We look forward to the day when we celebrate with joy. Why? Because the Lord is with us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that you know our hurts and our pains. Thank you that your gospel is true, that you take us from the pain of the fast and bring us joy to the feast. And so, Lord, as we come to this table now, may we see, taste, feel that joy, that grace, and that mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray.